<laughs> Welcome to holiday weekend. I love holiday weekends. Opening of football. Some people stayed up too late. Hey, t- turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, please. Acts chapter 8. What had begun as a small handful of people, 120, maybe 500, has grown to a, a really a mighty church of thousands. We're not really sure of the number, probably around 5,000 maybe in the city of Jerusalem who've now become Christians. Uh, things have developed quickly. God has been working in their midst in mighty signs and wonders. The church has been gathering to pray and houses and uh, in the temple court, listening to the apostles teaching, things have been rocking. It's been going great. And then they face some persecution from within as the enemy tries to attack with uh, people like Ananias and Sapphira and some different occurrences within the church. And they're also experiencing uh, attacks from without, where they're being beaten, they're being persecuted, things are are starting to, to, to pick up steam, so to speak. In Acts 6, we see that what is inevitable in every single church I've ever known or been a part of, complaining enters the church. And uh, some people felt like uh, they were being mistreated and uh, there was a division that occurred. And listen, Conflict, I, I try and teach this in premarital counseling all the time, conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable. You cannot arrange your life in such a way to avoid conflict. How many had conflict in their marriage in the last 20? No, don't, don't raise your hand. I mean, you, probably all of us, we were like, we stopped being a little quick. So uh, probably all of us have it. Because conflict is inevitable. It's two people trying to occupy the same space. We can have a conflict over what color of the chair should be or what color the wall should be. I went to bed on Friday night. I came out Saturday morning. My furniture had all been moved. Honest, this is the truth. My industrious wife, after I went to bed at like 10 o'clock, I went to sleep and I was thinking, man, she's not coming to, and I heard some banging going on out there, but I didn't really think anything of it. I come out, everything's moved, including my chair. You know, so I'm like, uh, do I even say whether I like this arrangement or not? Is that allowed? Or do I just say, good job, honey. Looks great. Conflict's inevitable. It's going to happen. The problem is not the conflict, it's how you handle the conflict. Um, You're going to work through conflict and be stronger, or you're going to, you know, it's going to be a battle or war to be won, and nobody wins in that scenario. In marriage, in life, working through conflict. So conflict comes and some complaining comes as a result about uh, some ways people were being treated in church. Again, universal truth of church. People think they should be treated in a certain way. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying this is when you have people, it's part of what what happens. People are working through their issues. Some people got more issues than others. And so we all work through them together. Anyway, so they appoint seven men 
filled with the Spirit to handle the difficulty because they there was some feeding that was going on. On um, they, they, they were trying to take care of people. And so in the conflict, some people didn't feel like they were being taken care of. So the apostles didn't, they wanted the apostles to keep teaching. So they appointed seven men filled with the Spirit who would then take care of the, take care of the needs. And you remember the story. Uh, among these seven are Stephen and Philip who's not Philip the Apostle, but Philip the Deacon, who's also known later as Philip the Evangelist, different Philip than one of the Apostles. Anyway, these guys are awesome. And Stephen starts going out and, you know, when he's not deaconing, he goes out and preaches. Well, that gets him in trouble because he gets arrested and he gets hauled before the Sanhedrin and he preaches one of the most powerful, incredible historic looks at the nation of Israel and the people of God and the purposes of God and the coming of the Messiah. And he just says it point blank to the leaders. And as most leaders are apt to do, they don't want to hear it point blank, especially when it comes to this proclamation of the gospel and the truth that they've already been denying and trying to get away from, which is that they had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. And then he starts talking about heaven opening up and him seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. And, oh, they go ballistic. They just, they, go, they, they haul him out. They start throwing stones at him to kill him. He and the peace of God just... Is, is martyred. And we see that standing, taking care of the cloaks of the people who are stoning Stephen, this man of God. So now not only have they killed Jesus, but now here goes Stephen, is one called Saul, who's standing there taking care of the cloaks. And then in chapter 8, Verse 1, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Turning point in the history of the church right here, chapter 8, verse 1. Up until now, if you become a Christian, you're Jewish. They've been practicing the law, the legalism, the the, the life of being a Jew, because that's all who's come. Everybody's been in Jerusalem. Everybody's come into the church, and now this persecution comes against the church, and they're scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Everybody except the apostles. This chapter is so rich. I'm going to try and not preach all day, because I'm going somewhere. Um, <clears throat> You probably got somewhere to go to, but this chapter is incredible. It is, I love this chapter of the Bible, and it's got some great truths to teach us. So please remember this. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So far, after this time frame, which we don't even know how long this has been, 
We don't have a clear indication of how long from when Jesus ascended and the Spirit came. It's been, it's been a couple of years at least, probably more, that the church has been in Jerusalem. And this is a great church. This is that kind of church you just don't want to leave. I mean, how much better does it get? You got the apostles. You're, you're, you're still living in your home. Things are going great. You're meeting every day. You're sharing everything. Things are, yeah, we got a couple of problems. But we got those taken care of. Things are going, it is, it is cooking. To the point that, so far, Jerusalem. Persecution happens, and they're scattered. There's this saying They've not made it to even Judea and Samaria, much less the other uttermost parts of the earth. And the indication is they're probably not going anywhere. The implication of this chapter is that this is the hand of God moving on the church to scatter them like seeds. This word of scattering, it's, it's that idea of the sower and the seeds and the scattering that's going to take place of the church. And it's been said, you can either be an Acts 1-8 church who goes, or you can be an Acts 8-1 church that God decides to send. This chapter has much to teach us about going to the ends of the earth. And I think there's some hard truths in here some of us need to hear afresh and anew this morning. Because... Again, the church in Jerusalem, though they were being bold and they were being targeted, there was a difference between targeted and the persecution that causes them to have to scatter. And is God really in the midst of our pain and brokenness and things that are going on? I think those are important questions to look at as we look at the purpose and plans of God for the spread of the gospel. So let me give you some uh, uh, truths from this chapter that I think are really, that are really critical about how we love God, how the gospel spreads. And the first one is this, receive brokenness, receive pain, receive it when it comes. I'm going to comment on it in just a second, but let me just read the passage to you again. On that day... A great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem, and all the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. I mean, it doesn't take long, does it? They're scattered really almost right away. I mean, the burial of Stephen is kind of attached to this. It's not like he's buried, big funeral, everything's going. Now, a little time, and they, it, the persecution comes quickly. But Saul, the guy, the the coat keeper, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Persecution begins, they get scattered like the seeds. And wherever they go, they preach the gospel, Judea and Samaria. Here's the idea that I want you to try and at least get a little bit of grasp on today is that 
God uses brokenness and pain in your life to move you forward. And you're like, well, that, I don't like this, Pastor. I don't like this word. I don't want to be broken. I don't want pain. Look, there's a couple of ideas here about brokenness and pain. I, I would contend, you can argue with me later, we can talk about it. All change is painful. Like, well, I don't know. Hey, look, all change means you have to, you were doing something, and now you're doing something different. At some level, that change involves some sort of pain. So, um, let's say that, um, let's say that I'm watching too much television. Could happen, right, in the pandemic? Kind of glued into online stuff. And I feel like God is saying to me, quit that and start reading. Well, for me to stop watching is going to involve some level of pain in my life. There's some pleasure it's been bringing me. There's some something that it's... I mean, think about it. Uh, if we... Just in life, if, if you feel like you're out of shape and you want to exercise, you've got to get up off the couch and start walking or running or whatever. That involves some level of pain. If you've, if you've got some habit that needs broken in your life, like you're, God is saying to you, give up alcohol. There, there's something that alcohol's done for you. You're giving it up. It's going to be a pain. Every change. I could just go down the list of dieting and exercising. Anything, it's going to involve some sort of pain in your life. Right? Do you, I mean, think about it. It's going to involve even reading the Bible. There's a level of pain, emotion. It takes a moment to get from where you were to where you're going. So pain and brokenness is a part of the process that God uses in your life. If you try to evolve, if you try to uh, get away from all pain, all brokenness in your life forever. Now, now listen, no one stands here and says, oh, break me. You know what I mean? I want more pain. I mean, we're not sick. It's not that, but it's a thing that says, look, change in our lives involves some level of pain. Therefore, I'm not going to so organize my life to avoid all pain, so therefore I never have to change. Sometimes the greatest changes take the greatest amount of pain. When God tells you to do something and you do it, there's still a level of pain. Just in doing what God tells you to do. Some of you, I'm not sure you totally agree. Thanks, Paul, for saying that's right. But um, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be joyful, but it'll be painful at the same time. Those two things aren't exclusive. God tells you to do something, you don't do it. That's going to involve some pain. God will help move you forward. I mean, and I think this is in some way... and. What's being painted is the picture of the church of Jerusalem. God has said to them, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They haven't even gotten Judea and Samaria yet, much less the ends of the earth. And so God breaks them up in order to scatter them like seeds across the earth so that they can preach the gospel. God hasn't abandoned. Here's the point. God has not abandoned them here. God is moving them. And we need this idea. What is God telling you to do? Well, you can either do it, some pain, 
Or you cannot do it and wait for God and maybe more pain and the delay has also occurred. Sometimes Satan tempts you to do something and you don't do it. Do you know it involves pain to not do what Satan tells you to do? Hello? Listen, uh, I, I just look here for a second. For the people who've told you that um, sin does not bring pleasure, those people are liars. There is pleasure in sin. But what we're looking for is the greater pleasure of being in the presence of God. And being in the presence of God, I think, is the greatest deterrent to sinning. Telling people to stop sinning because it's not pleasurable or the results are bad, I think gets us very little results. But what will get us great results is saying to people the truth, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. A higher calling that says, Satan's tempting me, but I'm not doing it. Why? Because I'm afraid, I'm a fearful, I'm, a, I'm, I'm this or that. No, because I, my, the greatest pleasure is being in the presence of God. And I don't want to do anything that stops that. That's a good sermon right there. Satan tempts you and you fall. This is how bad the devil is. He not only tempts you, you fall, and then what does he do? He condemns you the whole time. You, yeah, I knew you weren't worth it. You worthless thing. See, you can't even. I mean, he makes us stumble and then beats us up for the fact that we stumble because he tempted us. In other words, brokenness and pain is all around us. I think in some way, by the power of the Spirit indwelling us, we have a choice of how we're going to walk in brokenness and pain. The church God is using here. He's using persecution. Do you think these people would have ever left that church, left their homes? I mean, some of them probably had lived in Jerusalem. This was their ancestral home. This is not, you know, it's not like just uh, the way Americans think where we've lived in apartment, 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 apartment. Some of these people have been here forever, a long time. The church is going great. I mean, really, you talk about great teaching. We've got 12 apostles teaching us, growing the church. Got some great deacons now, being fed, being blessed. Yeah, there's some people who don't like it, but sometimes we need to receive in a sense. You understand what I'm saying, I hope? The brokenness that God brings into our lives in order to move us, move us forward. Second point is this. We need to cultivate listening. Cultivate listening. Um, let, I'm going to have to story tell to get to this passage, so just hang on. Church spreads. Philip has to leave. He goes to Judea and Samaria. He's spreading the word. Revival breaks out in Samaria. I mean, we're talking like full-blown, this is, God is moving. The Samaritans are coming to the Lord. The Samaritans, as you know, were like distant angry cousins to the Jews. They didn't like each other. You know, sometimes families are the worst to each other. And this is one of those things where the family can't get along anymore because of a number of issues. They're kind of distant relations. Anyway, they can't get along, but Philip goes to the Samaritans, like Jesus, the woman at the well with the Samaritan woman. He preaches the gospel, and they come to the Lord. The gospel has left Judea, and now goes to Samaria. 
through Philip and the others, but really Philip is the one who's doing the preaching. So much so that Peter and John come up to say, what's going on here? Let me check out this, what's happened in the Samaritans. They pray for people. They're filled with the Spirit, just like the Jews were. It's a sign God is moving among. It's, I mean, a full-scale-on Pensacola revival is going on at this place right now, for those of you who are old enough to remember those terms. <laughs> but a full-scale revival is happening here. In the middle of that, an angel says to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I don't know about you. I don't think I'd want this word. I mean, I'm in the middle of revival, Lord. I mean, really, look at what's happening here. The Samaritans are coming to the Lord. And this angel, this messenger, and we're assuming it's a real, you know, an angel angel. It could be, the word angel means messenger. So how he received this message, I'm not sure. But an angel comes and says to Philip, head south. Now, Samaria is one place. We're talking the desert road on the other side, I think, of Jerusalem, down to Gaza, head to the desert road. Philip Philip is at least listening to the point where the angel can speak to him, right? Back, uh, back in the olden days, we used to go to the movies. Didn't, you know, it was, it was nice. Movies were great. You know, the sound was never really all that good. I mean, I didn't even, you don't even know what you don't know. But then Star Wars comes out, Spielberg starts doing, uh, George Lucas starts doing sound. And I went to a theater one day and I saw this. This was before the movie. For those of you who are old enough, you will, maybe this will, this will ring a bell. unbelievable the sound was moving around the theater I've got spaceships here and Darth Vader here I mean it was going everywhere I always kind of liked that idea the audience is listening you know one of my questions is is the church listening are we listening or are we in a state where we have so avoided pain and brokenness, difficulty, that we are so comfortable with where we are that we feel like we don't really need to listen? God will use something to break through in our lives if we'll just open ourselves up, have our ears open to what he is saying. Again, I think... This idea with Philip is really, really hard. I mean, sometimes we're like, anybody else want to tell me something first? We need to cultivate listening. What are you doing in your life right now to hear from God? Do you believe God still speaks? And if he does, which we believe he does, 
We don't believe in a distant, removed God. We believe in a God who's active in our lives now. We believe in a God who's speaking. It's a complicated topic, I understand. But let's start with the premise that maybe God is still trying to say something to you about you and about the world around you and what you're involved in. Maybe it's as simple as talk to your neighbor. Maybe it's go the desert road. Maybe it's go somewhere else. Maybe it's change shop. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But are we even listening to what God has to say? Are we rather telling God what we want to do and then just asking his blessing upon it? We need to hear from God. We need to do things that cultivate listening. There's a whole teaching on this we could go into, how to cultivate listening in your life. But read some books on spiritual disciplines. Read, um, what's that John Mark Comer book? Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It doesn't sound like a book on spiritual disciplines, but it is. Um, it's just, for those of you who are younger millennials, you'll love it. Um, and so we're old people, but you could maybe handle Richard Foster or Dallas Willard. Or, there's a lot of different ways you can look. But all spiritual disciplines do is they put us, as Foster says, on the precipice, walking along where there's this... Um, this fall off on one side of legalism, doing it ourselves, and the, 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 the other side is not doing anything, right? And it puts us on the precipice. It's not us making God do anything except putting us in a position where we can hear from God. We're cultivating listening. Do something to cultivate listening in your life so that you can hear from God. And then, by the way, when you do hear I would encourage you to walk in obedience. If God says something, do it. You know, sometimes I heard Jack Taylor preach a sermon one time, and he said, you know why God isn't speaking to you right now? Because he's still waiting on you to do the last thing he told you to do. We need to walk in obedience. Let me read this longer passage to you from Acts chapter 8. Starting with verse 27. Uh, and I've already kind of queued up one part of it. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. I think there's an boom. Go to the, go, go to the road. Okay. He starts out. He, he immediate, I, there's an idea here to me of immediate obedience. You know, we, we had a saying back when uh, we were raising my child, my children, I have more than one, uh, all of them, uh, when we were raising my children, uh, delayed obedience is disobedience. Some may disagree with that, but we, th there was an idea that it's not the child choosing if they get to obey, it's obedience is part of what is trained into children. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I think Philip hears from God and, and goes. He starts out on his way. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. So Philip goes on the desert road, sees this Ethiopian guy, uh, um, by the way, Ethiopians, I'm going to Ethiopia in this month. At the end of this month, I'm going to Ethiopia. Ethiopians, I, I will stand out in Ethiopia 
because my skin color is, is white. Uh, it, it, it's, it's Africa. So he sees this Ethiopian guy. Now think about this. There's some things working here. The Ethiopian is not from around here. There's a racial divide. The Ethiopian you're going to see is in a chariot. He's rich. The Ethiopian is, a, is an official in Queen Candace of Ethiopia's court. By the way, the Candace dynasty is generally thought of more as a, a, a period of Ethiopian rule than a specific queen named Candy. Uh, so, uh, Candace. Uh, anyway, it, it's more of a dynasty, the Candace dynasty that he's a part of. And he's a eunuch, which means he has been physically altered in order to serve in the court. There are so many things about this guy that put Philip and him on different, in different places. And it goes on and says, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Well, here's the challenge for this guy going to, uh, to, to, to worship. He really couldn't. I mean, he could enter part of the temple, but he couldn't enter the whole thing because he's not Jewish. And by the way, he can never be Jewish. He can never, he's what's called a, probably a God-fearer. That's a technical term for someone who's interested in God. But there's so many things about Judaism that won't allow him to actually become Jewish. One is you have to move to Israel. You have to move there to become Jewish. Another is you can't be uh, maimed or physically altered in any way in order to become Jewish. It, it wasn't the black-white issue, but it was a division that he was not able to cross over in order to become Jewish. But he's interested in God. He's seeking after God. He's got enough money to go to Jerusalem from Ethiopia, by the way, which is not a small journey. I mean, Ethiopia was considered the ends of the world at this point in history. I mean, it was, it was, not, it was a difficult way to get there. Difficult challenge. And he's sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Again, tons of stuff this tells us about the guy. First, he can read. It means he's educated. And he could afford a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. I mean, books, it's not like Kindle. You know, you just order. I mean, you got the scrolls. This is expensive. And he's in his own chariot. His own wagon. The Spirit of the Lord tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. I mean, really, Philip is a deacon from Jerusalem who's been, at a, he'd been kicked out. He's been persecuted. He's had to flee, gone to Samaria. And now the angel says, go to the desert. Goes to the desert, sees a chariot with a rich guy in it. And God says to him, go just stand there. Okay. I mean, it's not like... Just be obedient. <laughs> Philip, at every step of this journey, has no idea what's going on. He's just walking. As, he's just taking the next step. God is not saying to him, hey, here's going to be the outcome of this. If you'll do this and this and this and this, here's going to be the outcome. So far, all God has said is go here. Then he gets there, and then God says, go here. Okay, I'll go there. Now do this, and that's what Philip does. Some of us want the end picture before we take the first step. 
And sometimes if we'll take that first step in what God tells us and he shows us the next, you'll end up in a place of glory that you are fruitfulness or harvest that you never knew you would end up in. But if you have to have the end picture before you start out on the journey, you may never take the first step. And then some again are wondering, why will God not speak to me? God is speaking to you. Take the first step and see then what the next step is. Walk, walk. It's, it's, it's a walk, right? It's a step-by-step journey in obedience. So Philip does it. He even says, do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. The eunuch says, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? So he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. It's just an incredible story. We, we read this too many times without enjoying the, the incredibleness of this story. Philip, he goes, stands there, looks up. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? Well, no, how can I? I need somebody to explain it to you. I can explain it. I could help. Come on up. So, the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. Listen to the passage he's reading from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Cue it up. Right? I mean, like, I, I don't know this. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Does it not give you the chills? I mean, of all the passages, hey, I'm reading this one, I don't get it. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Can you explain this to me? I mean, this is the easiest evangelistic open-door question I've ever seen. The guy is, he's wanting to know who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. I mean, I, I, words fail me at this point. I, I don't know what to say other than we need to walk in obedience. It's glory to walk in obedience. You don't know what's going to happen if you'll but walk in obedience. And Philip could have looked back and said, look, this whole thing is stunk. I was doing my deacon duty at home, like I was supposed to, and I have to flee my house from my life. I go to Samaria, I try to be faithful there, revival breaks out, now God sends me to the desert. But instead, every, I think every moment, Philip is saying, the Spirit of God is talking to me, I'm moving. He's walking in obedience. And sometimes we've just got to admit that the thoughts of the Lord are not our thoughts. And His ways are not our ways. We love that passage, except we really, we really don't. We love it. We love to quote it. 
as if the sovereignty of God is this awesome thing. But what if God's sovereignty and his thoughts are so not your thoughts that you're moving, he's going to move you in a direction that you never even dreamed he would ever move you. You're going to the desert places. You're going to Samaria. You're, whew. Walk in obedience. Again, we can either walk in obedience, which brings a little, I almost tripped there. I almost came over on you. Um, <laughs> my step was too big. We can either walk in obedience, which brings a level of pain in our lives by just doing something different, or we can not walk in obedience and receive pain and discipline. I would also contend, and I'm going to quit preaching, I'm going to move forward quickly here, but I would also contend that, that the greatest pain of life is just apathy and doing nothing. You know, trying to avoid pain so you don't feel pain and you get apathetic and lethargic and nothing is the, it's the most devastating pain in life. You can think about that later. And then, final point is this, expect a harvest. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? I mean, think about Philip... Philip must have taught him a lot, right? I mean, he went from not knowing who this guy, Isaiah, by the time they've gone along the road long enough, hey, I get baptized. That was some sermon. And some, because he did tell him everything about Jesus, and I guess he taught him about baptism. Now he's ready to get baptized. And he gave orders, stop the chariot, I'm going to get baptized. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. We're a Baptist church. I make no qualms about it. We believe that baptism follows conversion. It seems to be the biblical picture. Things like this, where baptism comes after a person has faith in Jesus. We're having baptism next Sunday. If you've never been water baptized, you follow Jesus maybe as a child or weren't baptized as an infant, we would encourage you to do believer's baptism, which is more than a dedicatory baptism. It's a baptism that follows conversion. We would encourage you to be baptized. If you'd like to be, um, come be baptized. In two weeks, we're going to do another baptism. Matt Jackson is coming back and is going to be here on Sunday morning and is going to baptize his kids, help us lead in worship in a couple of weeks. So come back and we're going to keep baptizing. We'll baptize every single Sunday for people who need baptism. That'd be my dream. My dream would be to have baptisms every single day of the week. Hey, here's a, here's a baptistry that's got water in it. Let's get baptized. There's a pool. Let's get baptized. I love this story. This guy, this Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, Philip had every reason not to get in that chariot. Fearful not Jewish, racial, economic, but he does. And as a result, this guy who couldn't become Jewish is able to become Christian. Not only that, legend has it, or history, it's not exact history, it's more legendary or 
the Ethiopian eunuch goes back and evangelism occurs in the household of Candace, the Ethiopian queen. You know, we're going to look at Cornelius. You could look at it coming up. It's always accredited. He's the first Gentile. I don't think so. I think this guy is. He's not Jewish. So what is he? He's Ethiopian. He's a Gentile. Look at how great God is. He goes so far outside. You know, the, Cornelius, I mean, he's Roman. He's white. He's, you know... He's more acceptable as the first Gentile. I think this guy is it. Not only that, but he's about to be the one who actually takes the message to the end of the earth. Ethiopia. It's an incredible harvest. Expect a harvest. What are you expecting God to do in your lives today? When you leave here. What are you expecting God to do? If you'll receive the brokenness that God would, would say, quit doing this and do this, if you'll allow the pain of change to come into your life, if you'll cultivate listening and trying to hear from God about what you're supposed to do, if you walk in obedience when you do hear, I believe that the harvest is plentiful. Expect a harvest. Expect God to do great things. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. What? How did that happen? I don't know. I'll just tell you. People have speculated, but he was, he was gone. And the eunuch did not see him again. Hey, where's the guy who baptized me? I think there are any number of reasons why this could happen. You know what? This rich guy could have tried to bless the poor preacher guy. I don't know. But God is just so in the process, he just, Philip is gone. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Where, what did the eunuch do? He went on, he just got saved. He just got baptized. He is out of here and he is on fire. He's rejoicing. He's moving forward. He went from confused outsider to in the family of faith rejoicing. You'd think we'd hear a lot about Philip, but we, we don't hear much. It's 20 years ago. It's 20 years or so before we hear of Philip again. And when we hear of Philip, believe it or not, he's still in Caesarea. And Paul, and most likely Luke, visit him. And it says, this is Acts 21, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. That's our Philip. The, the deacon, the evangelist. One of the seven. They make it clear. This is our guy Philip. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Prophets. Prophetesses. Prophets. They were prophesying. I think it's a great story. He just keeps moving forward. And now he's, he's, he's evangelized his family. They're filled with the Spirit. They're blessing the Lord. They're going to bless Paul and Luke. I... 
The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. Praise God, I'm going to bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Not a lack of pain, not a lack of change. But if we stay right with God, righteous, right with God, we can expect to hear, we can expect to move, we can expect fruitfulness for every day of all of our lives. That's what I desire. There's a story about an evangelist named Duncan Campbell. Duncan Campbell was a British preacher, evangelist from the 1940s, early 50s. Uh, he, worked in a, he worked for an organization called the Faith I get it right. The Faith Mission Movement. Pretty easy to say. When he was young and was a preacher in the Faith Mission Movement in his early days, he saw a big harvest of, uh, of souls and God doing great things. And then uh, somebody told him he should go to school, get educated. He decided to, went to school, went to seminary, and eventually became the, 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 the right reverend, Duncan Campbell. He became one of the best-known preachers in all of England. He was, um, he was invited to speak at the Keswick Convention, which is at that time the major, I mean, for England, this was like the major preaching event of the whole year. And as he's preparing his sermons, as preparing his sermons, his daughter comes in and says, hey, Dad, can I talk to you for a second? I was wondering something. He said, sure, I'm preparing my sermons, but yeah, what do you want? 15-year-old daughter and says, hey, I was just wondering, why does God not use you like he used to use you? And he was floored. Now, first of all, no, no, no preacher would ever want to hear these words. And he says to her, what, what do you mean? She goes, well, when you were with the faith mission movement, you have all these stories about what God used to do. But I don't hear you saying anything about what God is doing. It takes a 15-year-old teenage girl at times. It's hard to believe they speak the truth, but at times they do. I don't he got on his face and started crying out to God and saying, she is so right. I mean, he'd become somebody, but he hadn't become somebody. You know what I mean? I'm not down on education. I'm big on education, by the way. But I think it's a hand-in-hand -hand process of the power and presence of the Spirit. He got down on his face and said, God, if you'll, if you'll use me like you did, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Whatever it is. A number of weeks later, he is on a platform, not at the Keswick Movement, but another convention where he is the, the keynote speaker. He's preached one sermon. He's about to preach another. And he hears the Spirit of God tell him to go to the Hebrides Islands the Isle of Lewis. Now, if you, I, I'm not a British person, but the Hebrides Islands are these remote islands off of northwest Scotland. They're not really convenient to get to. And at that moment, Duncan Campbell starts arguing with God. I, I, I go, but I, I got to speak. And God said, you said. I mean, he's hearing this all in his spirit. God has said, if you... When I told you to do something, you would do it. 
And so he went to the people and said, hey, I got to go. You have to get somebody else to preach for I got to go to the Isle of Lewis. I don't even know if he knew where it was. And so it takes him three days to get there, to travel to the Isle of Lewis. He gets off, gets off the boat. He asks a person at the ferry station where, where there are churches on the Isle of Lewis. And the, the guy says, we have, we have three churches, but no one meets there. They're empty. And he said, what about a preacher? And we got no preacher on the island. You know, not anybody who knows the Lord. And he said, well, we got these two little old ladies, and they, they, they know the Lord. And the postman, he knows the Lord. I, I, I don't know where our postman is today, but he's not here. But we got a postman who knows the Lord. He said, I'd start there. He said, okay, tell me where the postman lives. He goes to the house of the postman. Knocks on the door. This is Duncan Campbell's in his biography. Knocks on the door. The postman answers the door and says, Reverend Campbell, we've been waiting for you. And he goes, what? And he said, yeah, me and these two women have been praying. And we, uh, the meeting starts in a couple of hours. And, he goes, and he's like, what meeting? And he said, we heard from God you were coming today. And we printed up these flyers. We put them all over town that you were going to be here preaching in this afternoon. Now, this story just sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? And revival breaks out. Did it, it took hearing from God on all levels. It took walking in faith on all levels for what is known as the Hebrides revival to, to break out on the Isle of Lewis and other surrounding islands over the next five to ten years. Uh, Duncan Campbell went back several times and had different meetings, and he would even attest he really wasn't the preacher. It was just the, he, he was used, but it was really the power of God moving on the islands. It was really those two older women and the postman that God really used to bring revival. He just happened to have a name that made people listen for a little better. My question to us today is really this. Are we, is the audience listening? Is the congregation listening to God? Are we ready to walk in a level of brokenness that gets out of, out of our comfort zone and into the purposes and plans of God? Are we so willing to not only hear from God, but then step out every moment of every day in obedience to him so that in the end we can cultivate a harvest in our families, our friends, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Lord, I pray that you would move in might and power in us today. I pray that, God, you would do things beyond anything we can ask or even imagine. God, I pray that you would forgive us for our apathy, our being lethargic, our being uh, lazy, and have thought that this lack of problems in our lives in some way was godliness. And instead, Lord, I pray that you would God, I'm not asking for pain. I really don't want that. But I'm willing to do what you need to have done in my life and in the life of this church in order for us to walk in our purpose and our plan and your destiny for us. Lord, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. I pray in this room you would find faithful, diligent harvest workers. May we go into our spheres of influence today, tomorrow, all the days of our life, who are just old men and women and we're still being fruitful. We want to bear fruit, Lord. Fruit that will last. Move in our hearts, our lives, 
in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up an offer.